You're listening to a podcast from 702. 6 p.m. 702. The Naked Scientist. Happy Monday, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am great, and I have a question for you. Go on then. But I know I'm biased. You know my question's going to be biased. Why do babies bald? And I don't mean when they're born. I mean, they go through a stage where they have a full head of hair and then suddenly they have this weird bald patch at the back. Ah, well, that's actually because of what babies spend most of their time doing when they're first with us outside the body. And that is lying on their backs. So actually, they rub the back of their head on things and it and it means the hair which is quite fragile there's not much of it when they're first born it just gets a bit rubbed off and as they then spend more time sitting up which they do from as, as we all know once they get to about six months of age they're sitting up most of the time um but they are spending much less time with their head rubbing on the ground and so they don't rub their hair off so it's largely a ball patch because of just the hair being fractured and breaking off so it's not some weird form of baby alopecia not to my knowledge, no. I mean, I remember when I actually did paediatrics asking the other doctors that, and they said it's because of them spending a long time laying on their back. So maybe they were deceiving me, but no, my understanding is it, it's just because that, that's the bit of the skull that takes all the pressure of the weight of the head, which is which is disproportionately big and heavy in a baby. And that's why, you know, human babies have to be born at the time they do, because if they got much bigger, they wouldn't get out of us at all. Yes. Um, and many women will testify to how big a baby's head is. And yes. all of that force is, is, is a applied to the back part of the skull and and that is where all the pressure is is loaded onto the hair so it rubs it off makes complete sense thank you for that all right we've got elizabeth in kempton park elizabeth go ahead hi dr chris so i heard that um there's a lot of other animals that have gotten COVID 19 like minks and cats and lions and deer i was wondering is it um common that a virus that jumps from one animal to another, like with the bats to humans, is it common that it will then also jump to other animals? Is zoonosis more common then? It does happen, absolutely. And in the case of, of this new coronavirus, it's very similar in structure to a bat virus. So we think that whatever its route into humanity, whether that was just a, a direct jump or, or via some lab experiment that escaped, we just don't know yet. Certainly the origin was a bat. And because bats are quite remotely related to humans, there's a big jump there for it to make. And other animals are more closely related to uh, bats than we are. So therefore, it's not totally unsurprising that with this coronavirus, it would, if it can jump into humans, also be able to get into other animals that share many of the same structures and biochemistry that we do that the virus exploits to infect us. Not all animals are, are similarly susceptible, though, because when people have looked at this, and, and these are important experiments to do, because, of course, we spend our lives in very close proximity to animals, and we've learned about this because of the flu. The flu is a bird virus that periodically jumps the species barrier and causes a pandemic in humans that then becomes seasonal or epidemic flu for the years after the pandemic until another pandemic comes along and displaces it. So we know all about the risks of viruses jumping from animals to humans. So with that in mind, people have been looking. And humans spend a lot of time with dogs and cats, and those species can also be infected with this new coronavirus, though they don't necessarily develop disease at the rate that we do. Uh, one of the first reports of this happening was actually from the Bronx Zoo in America, where a tiger called Nadia became very unwell. 
and they tested this very valuable animal for absolutely everything until someone said, well, we keep drawing a blank. What about coronavirus infection? And they tested the tiger and it was positive. Turned out it also transmitted it to some of the other animals or possibly that a common source infected the other animals. We don't know for sure. So some animals are susceptible, some less so. You've highlighted another one, mink. They're also susceptible. Ferrets, very similar to us, biochemically speaking, so ferrets can get it. But birds, on the other hand, they have their own suite of coronaviruses, quite distinct from human coronaviruses, and they don't seem to catch this new COVID, which is a good thing, because otherwise it would be even even easier for it to transmit round. At the moment, Europe's doing battle against a massive bird flu outbreak. It would be hell on earth if we had bird flu plus COVID in birds plus COVID in people. Elizabeth, are you answered there? Yes, thank you very much. That's a very comprehensive answer. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth and Kempton Park. Tabo in Pretoria, hi. Hi, Lebohile and Dr. Chris. Mm. Yes, I just want to find out, I've been wondering, like, uh, uh, is that time when mosquitoes are up in arms? Like now, I just want to find out how is it possible that the mosquito will just come and invade my body and suck my blood without, without <laughs> me even feeling that I'm being beaten. Only after the mosquito left, that's when I said, ah, uh-uh, something was here. So how is it possible that I don't feel a thing until it left? Tabo, I feel your your trauma. Hey, mosquitoes love me, and I only know after I've been bitten. Uh, that's a great question, uh, Tabo in Pretoria. Doctor? The answer to this one is is quite simply that evolution has endowed these creatures with the ability to sneak up on you and feast on you undetected because their life depends on it. If you were to detect them, you would stop them and splat them. And so they have evolved and been and the ones that are really good at finding you, hunting on you, feasting on you, having a banquet and then disappearing without you knowing. They're the successful ones because they're going to have more eggs, more babies and pass on the trait, aren't they? So it really comes down to the fact that, that these are tiny, so they're hard to detect anyway. They have amazing senses of smell. The antennae that come out of the heads of a mosquito are covered in receptors, which are effectively chemical docking stations capable of detecting a range of different volatiles or chemicals that come from your body. These include things oozing out of your skin that tell them, aha, nice human over there also carbon dioxide that we breathe out from our our lungs that's also an attractant they're also able to detect temperature so they fly towards where these gases are becoming more concentrated and warmer and that tells them where there's a likely meal on tap and then they crawl around until they find a place to to, to take a meal and they're so tiny they weigh so little and their mouth parts are so slender they can thread them through your skin and only on rare occasions will you actually feel it and and i've actually done the experiment on myself where i've watched a mosquito feeding on a finger and and i could feel by when i was watching it i could just about discern when it was trying to thread its mouth parts in to to start biting me but if i hadn't been watching it i would not have been aware of that at all and so it's basically those factors that make make you a, a magnet for mosquitoes and they get away with it and now we are all itchy. Thank you so much, Tabo, in Pretoria for that. Tabo in Pretoria, thank you for that question. Keith in Ethel, hi. Hi, i um, got a question for Dr. Chris uh, regarding having a flu shot and a COVID shot on the same day. Mm. Um, last year, when I had a flu shot, my pharmacist said um, I must not have my COVID shot within the next 14 days as it might overload my immune system. 
And when I went for my COVID shot, I was asked if I'd had any shots in the previous 14 days. And if so, I would have to wait 14 days from that shot until I could get my COVID shot. Now, I see that in the US and the UK, they, I don't know, they're suggesting or they may have approved having a flu and COVID shot on the same day. So I would just uh, appreciate your comment on that, doctor. Mm, Yes, absolutely. There is a study which was carried out in the UK called the COM-FLU-COV study. And the idea was to size up the response that people made when they had a COVID vaccine, a COVID vaccine plus a flu vaccine or a flu vaccine and then a COVID vaccine. So the idea being that you test all these permutations out and see if people get more intensification of their side effects or a weaker or better immune response to one or both of the vaccines when you administer them in this way. Because initially we didn't know what would be the interaction with these vaccines and so it was um, not acceptable to say to people go and get both together because that hadn't been formally tested. Now it has, now we've got very rigorous, very robust data that show that people who get both doses at the same time, COVID in one arm, flu in the other arm, don't have more side effects really in the grand scheme of things to write home about. They do develop good protection against both infections and therefore you minimise on time, minimise on inconvenience and maximise the protection against multiple things that you're affording to that person at once. So the current guidance based on, on proper rigorous clinical trials is now that you can safely have both vaccines at the same time. That's a great question. Thank you so much, Keith and Ethel. Thank you. Um, doctor, we've got a question on our WhatsApp line. Uh, Lerato Midrand is asking, what causes insomnia and why is it so hard for insomniacs to fall asleep despite being tired? In some cases, thankfully rare, insomnia is a genetic condition. There are some inherited traits that mean that people don't sleep properly. But these are rare. And the vast majority of cases of insomnia are what we call acquired And they are caused by various factors that are modifiable. And the usual one is stress. So if a person's got things on their mind, in order to get to sleep at night, we have to feel relaxed and feel rested in order to drop off and then not wake up again. And if we do wake up for some reason, to drop off again. If you've got things on your mind, then they will A, keep you awake at night because you'll be thinking about them when you should be relaxing and trying to wind down and go to sleep. And if you then wake up early for some reason, you then don't get back to sleep because immediately you're awake, you're thinking about those things and the sleep you do get is not restful. Because you don't get restful sleep, you feel tired. Because you're tired, your coping resources and your resilience drops. So this makes you more stressed. Because you're more stressed, you sleep less well and it goes around in a vicious cycle. And so one has to break that cycle by identifying what the triggers are. What is it you're worried about? What are the things that are making you stressed? What is it you can do to minimize them and then have what they call good sleep hygiene? Make a plan about going to bed at a regular time, getting off to bed with no distractions before you go to bed for at least an hour of downtime, no screens, no stress, never read an email in the evening, especially if you're struggling to sleep and it's work-related stress, never open emails after a certain time in the evening, give yourself a nice clear washout period to really calm down. Other things like... Um, relaxing drinks, warm drinks, that kind of thing. Make the make the bedroom an area dedicated purely for sleeping so you don't take your laptop in there and do work in bed, for example, which some people are guilty of. So all these things to minimise triggers before you go to bed, they can really help to get you to get a better night's sleep. 
and then look at those factors in your lifestyle that are making you uh, not sleep well. And also don't dismiss our old friend coffee because strong coffee or other caffeinated beverages, Coca-Cola, other kinds of drinks that have got lots of caffeine in them, they're, they're okay early on in the day because their effect will wear off later. But if you have those things later in the day, the effect of the caffeine, it stays in the body for quite a number of hours and therefore it will have an arousing effect on you later into the evening and that will help to increase your stress and tension and sleeplessness when you want to be feeling relaxed and tired. So look at modifying your caffeine intake as well. So in essence, it is something that can be addressed without having to be on sleeping medication. Absolutely. And the first thing that anybody who uh, helps or treats or supports someone who's got insomnia should do is to start with the minimally invasive, non-interventional things, just functional things, things that people can do in order to produce the best kind of likelihood that you're going to sleep naturally. And you only start to consider things like medications when all other avenues have been exhausted because it might not be necessary. So why have to go through the rigmarole of prescription agents and drugs and possible side effects when in fact there might be other ways to manage things? These sorts of drugs are a sticking plaster. And if you slap them over a wound, then they, they don't make the cause of the problem go away. They just protect your wound for a while and make it a bit less, a bit less uncomfortable. Much better would be not to get wounded in the first place. And that's where the lifestyle modification comes in. All right. Um, we had a, a, a question um, that was around COVID-19 variants. And they were saying that how do you know which variant is which when a person has COVID? Obviously, we know that the, there are different variants, but how do you know which variant a person has? In some cases, though the diagnoses when they're made, because they're using PCR, which is the polymerase chain reaction, to extract the genetic information of the virus, when that flags up positive, that same genetic material made to do the test can also be read to look at the genetic sequence. And there are some fingerprint changes which are present in some variants, but not in others. And you can use that pattern of fingerprint changes to work out what variant it is. But not everyone has their test sequenced. For instance, in many places, people are just doing lateral flow tests. And that says you're positive. And if they've got symptoms as well and a history of contact, it's very likely the diagnosis is going to be coronavirus. So what do you do then? Well, under those circumstances, that's where you use statistics because when a country has cases of coronavirus, they'll know what the, the rough fraction of cases of a certain variant is. And they'll say, right, okay, well, 98% of the cases in the country are Omicron, let's say. Therefore, it's very likely, 98% likely, that's the variant that you've got. The only time this really matters is when sort of early on in uh, variant introductions into new territories. So, for instance, in the UK, when Omicron first began to circulate, it accounted for 5%, 10%, 20% of cases. Under those circumstances, it was useful to know by sequencing exactly what variant it was where possible, because there are some treatments that will work on the Delta agent, but they won't work against Omicron. So it was important to know which variant it was and also to give information prognostically to the, the patient, how likely they are to be unwell and so on. It's useful to have that. But once we get to a stage where, you know, 99% of the cases are a particular variant, there's not so much value in making your decisions based on waiting for a sequence because it's almost inevitable it will be the one that accounts for 99% of the cases in the country. Okay, another WhatsApp that comes through from um, Sam in Tembisa, which says, 
Um, I have exactly nine days to my payday and my fridge is running on empty. All of a sudden, the more food my, f- the more my food depletes, the more hungry I get. In December, when my fridge was packed with food, my appetite was almost shut down. What is the science or psychology behind this weird occurrence? Should the opposite not happen that I get plenty of appetite when I have plenty to eat and my system shutting down my appetite and putting me in safe mode during my times of lack, my stomach boggles me doctor that's sam oh i'm sorry sam's hungry um the answer to this is that actually we we can't just bulk up on the good times and then have nothing to eat on the lean times. some animals do do that there are some animals that are really very good at shoving loads of calories down their throats and storing loads of energy when they have a bumper harvest and then they can actually afford to eat next to nothing later but humans have a very high metabolic rate and we have a less good capacity for storing energy in that way. We can store some, but not as much as, as these, these other animals. And that means that we tend to need to maintain a fairly regular calorie intake because that's how we've evolved, to, to eat a, a regular intake and, and a certain number of calories at a certain time. And, and I think what's gone on here is that because of the dwindling supplies of food in the fridge, you probably regulated how much energy you're taking into your body. You're probably eating a bit less not just once, but every day. And in your brain, in your hypothalamus, which is at the bottom of your brain, there is an energy center, an appetite center that's basically monitoring what you're eating, how much energy is coming into your body and how many different nutrients are coming into your body. And it's a bit like the person who keeps an, an eye on the stock check and says how much is coming in and how much is going out. And it adjusts appetite and metabolic rate accordingly. And if you chronically undereat over a period of time, it's going to make you hungrier and hungrier because it's got today's shortfall to make up for and yesterday's and the day before that. So it will tend to accrue a greater impact on appetite until you get used to it because the other thing that's going on is in the background. Your metabolism is also adjusting. Your body is adjusting to use energy more efficiently when you do run out, when you get hungry. And it shifts what you burn how you burn it and what sorts of fuels you're using, that takes a little while. While that's kicking in, you do tend to feel really abhorrently hungry for a while until you get used to uh, a slightly different calorie burden and a different uh, energy production cycle in the body. And and then you, you, you still feel hungry, but not as bad as when you went from having times of plenty to then suddenly having to go cold turkey or not cold turkey if the fridge is empty after Christmas and, and you're eating much less. Uh, somebody uh, commenting, Kathy, on the WhatsApp line says, I've always maintained that you don't take sleeping meds to sleep. You take them to forget perhaps an awful event in your life. So that's an interesting one on the subject of insomnia. The problem with insomnia is if you don't treat the cause, you're condemned to have it until you do. And you end up just uh, resorting to various other sticking plasters, usually chemical ones in the form of drugs and so on, rather than confronting the real problem that's causing it. And it's much better in the long run to ask, why is this happening? Mm. What can I do to make my life better so that the problem that's causing this is removed? And sometimes these things can feel unassailable. They can feel overwhelming. But sometimes talking them through with someone, you can identify easy wins and things that, in fact, are not as bad as you thought. They can be solved and you slowly chip away and turn a mountain into a series of small pebbles. And each of those is not quite so frightening. And then you feel much calmer and then you can get a good night's sleep.
All right, we have Thomas in Tembisa. Hi, Thomas. Hi, hello, man. Mm, go ahead, Thomas. Yes, I just want to know, actually, on the universe, as to, uh, other than the asteroids, the comets, the stars, the moons and planets, are there any other natural objects there on the universe? Ooh, we're not hearing you so clearly, Doctor. Did you hear that? Well, I think what Thomas is asking is, apart from the stuff we do know about, like comets and asteroids, stars and planets, moons, satellites, are there any other entities out there? Yes. Well, of course, there are black holes. I mean, they're, they're mega, aren't they? Black holes. And there's, there's supermassive ones at the middles of galaxies. There are other smaller black holes out there in the universe. We know they exist because now we have new ways of seeing them apart from the fact that people really have seen them and they've taken pictures of them now, and that got um, press all over the world a couple of years ago when scientists published the first picture of what what's called the event horizon of a black hole was actually imaged. We've also got gravitational waves as a way of looking at these things now because black holes are intensively gravitationally active, which means they distort and deform the fabric of space and produce ripples in the fab- fabric of space. Those are gravitational waves, and they travel through everything to get to us over billions of light years and so we can image the universe using gravitational waves now as well and people are beginning to use our gravitational wave detectors in order to see new events taking place and interactions between these structures out there in the universe so i would say the one thing missing off thomas's list was black holes and those are the really exciting thing all right thank you so much dr chris smith always a pleasure chatting to you chris smith the naked scientist